Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, part three of my three-part series on the life and times of great comics historian Bill Shelley. This week, I'm joined by Jeff Gelb, a longtime friend of Bill's. They go back many years, and Jeff shares some wonderful stories about his times with Bill and about how much Bill really meant to him in his life, as well as a few little reminiscences of his own life. This is just a wonderful, heartfelt interview. It was a real treasure to get to do this interview, and I hope you really enjoy it. Let's start right after this ad. You and he uh, became kind of fan friends um, back in the day. You were, he says, the second contributor to his fanzine ever, other than himself. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know how that happened, except that um, in the early and mid-60s, it was a very small world of comic book fans, and we all seemed to find each other through other fanzines. So, and the interest to me was contributing to as many fanzines as possible because I wanted to extend my reach uh, with fellow fans, and I also wanted to contribute art and articles to other people's fanzines. I was publishing my own fanzine as well called Men of Mystery, uh, but I had plenty of spare time at night to work on other people's fanzines. So somehow I connected with Bill probably through an ad for his fanzine and Rockets Blast or something like that. And then I offered him my services as a young teenager. I was probably 14 at the time and I did not have very many skills, but I had a lot of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think he picked up on that. So I was involved in fandom about 20 years later than you, late 70s and early 1980s. Okay. And um, I also remember the thrill of being about 14 years old and finding your tribe of fellow comic readers and also being anxious to contribute to everything I could contribute to, um, kind of in part just to build up my network of friends and, and companions. Absolutely, yeah. It was definitely, and, and of course we're talking about the pre-internet days here, so this was a really exciting opportunity to get to know like-minded people and in my community, which was upstate New York, Rochester, I knew a couple of other comic book fans, one or two, but I didn't know many. And so this extended my reach, and it was very exciting to do that. Do you remember if there was anything that stood out about Bill zines at the time, or was it just that you were interested in many different uh, zines? Yeah, you're exactly right. The latter is exactly right. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to extend my brand, so to speak. <laughs> and Bill was just one more place to do that. We weren't friend friends at that time. He was just someplace where I uh, where I was able to uh, contribute art or articles. Uh, our real friendship did not start until the late 80s when he joined Kappa Alpha, the amateur press association that I was involved with. And he saw my name in there and remembered me from the 60s and literally reached out by phone and said, hey, do you remember me? Uh, You contributed to my fanzines in the 60s. Then I kind of guided him through the uh, motions of becoming a Kappa Alpha uh, contributor. And he started writing fanzines for Kappa Alpha. After that, Although we um, may have talked on the phone several times, there was still no sense of a friendship developing there until we agreed to meet 
at a San Diego Comic-Con, and I'm thinking it was 1991 when that happened. And, uh, and at that point, we just clicked immediately because we recognized how many things we had in common. It's interesting. That's so, when, go ahead. Yeah, that's when, the, that's when the true friendship really began. So you, I think you describe him in your piece for the journalist, kind of you felt like you were his tour guide into returning into fandom. And of right. course, APAs were kind of a safe place to kind of wet your feet, but still have kind of an outside life. Um, what do you think it sparked in him at the time? What sparked him to get reinvolved? Yeah, do you think he was missing this kind of deeper involvement? I think that's exactly right, yeah. And I think he goes into some detail about that in Sense of Wonder, mm -hmm. uh, where he did run a comic book store for a while. He did see somebody uh, who talked about uh, an APA uh, to him uh, through the comic book store. And so, uh, yeah, I think it just allowed him to scratch an itch that he had not scratched for 20 years and felt a creative need to do so. Yeah, it seemed like he was... Not wandering, but uh, definitely wasn't himself for a few years, or was was kind of a place a lot of us are when we're in our twenties and thirties, especially if we don't have a family, where he seemed to be kind of um, a little adrift. And it seems like fandom really gave him an anchor again. That is exactly right, and that is very normal. And I think that when people take the time to really think about their lives, they'll recognize how authentic they are being. And Bill wanted to be authentic again. Uh, and, and it's not just Bill, it's everybody. You know, we all go through that phase where we'll, we'll go where life takes us, and at some point we'll go, yeah, but I really miss whatever it is they miss, and then you start to come back to who you really are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my wife has done that with her running. She had moved away from running after running in her 20s. Coming back to it in her 40s and 50s has been like so much more pleasurable than if she had just continued through. Yes, exactly right. It's like a rediscovering an old friend. Yeah. Um, so you guys uh, met for the first time at San Diego. Um, was it part of a larger get together? Had, had you planned on like a number of KA members meeting up there, or is it just that you guys had kind of coordinated well, your trips? There were. It was both actually. Um, Kappa Alpha had a group of people that met in San Diego and had a breakfast every year, and so there was there was that to look forward to. But as as well as that. We had, Bill and I had connected to the point where we decided we wanted to write, uh, do some interviews with um, prominent comic book fans together, and that if we met in San Diego, we would have the opportunity to uh, interview Don and Maggie Thompson mm -hmm. and of, of Comic Buyer's Guide, and we thought, let's do that together. And so there were two reasons. One of them was the APA, and one of them was a project that we wanted to do together. And we did end up doing several interviews together and separately under an umbrella. And I don't even remember what the name of the umbrella was, but the, there was an umbrella term for what we were doing for Comic Buyer's Guide where we were contributing these early interviews with comic book fans. Bill did a lot more of them than I did. I think I contributed a couple. One of them was with Raymond Miller, and there might have been one or two others, but he did the lion's share of the work there because that was more his interest than mine. So even back then, Bill was coming into his uh, interest in comic book fandom, and in particular, a side correspondence going with Ron Foss, the wonderful comic book cartoonist from the 1960s fan scenes. And he, he and Ron were, were, uh, were conversing through mail uh, regularly, and 
uh, I think that also led to Bill's resurgence of interest in early comic fandom. Yeah, it's interesting that his first real step back into fandom was to do these profiles of his old companions. Right. Um, It's like the interesting kind of safe area to get into in a way, Um, but also a chance to reconnect. I guess that's what it really is, like a a nod sort of high school reunion. Yeah, I'm sure that it ignited something within Bill, a spark that was there, but it was dormant. Mm-hmm. And then that, that spark was ignited by his correspondence with Ron, and then I'm sure that Ron put him in touch with other people like Grass Green and Bill Joe White, who were his contemporaries in 1960s fanzines. Those That was really the triumvirate of great comic book fanzine artists, and I'm sure that Ron put Bill in touch with those other guys. So you are, for want of a better word, the Shazam for his Captain Marvel. You're kind of the wizard who got him reconnected. Um <laughs> I never thought of it that way. I'll I'll accept that because I'm a big Captain Marvel fan, so that works. Um, I'm not even sure I have a question there as much as I just kind of sparked that idea. Um, So you guys hit it off well at the convention. It's an interesting thing to do a paired interview with someone, too, when you have two people interviewing. I've done that a few times. And when you can do that well, there's a certain spark that you get between yourself and the other person doing the interview. Um, we just feel this different sort of connection than you would otherwise. I wonder if that's a a little bit of the spark. No question about it, because everybody comes at things from a different perspective. Now, I, at that point, was a journalist. I was working at a music industry trade publication called Radio and Records, so I was used to interviewing people. I did it all the time. Mm -hmm. So I had my own sense of what I wanted to get out of an interview, and so it it was a good team up, because Bill probably covered the more fanish stuff and I covered the more basic stuff. And so as a combination, it worked quite well. Although we didn't do very many together. We did one or two together. Okay. But but it was the spark of our friendship and it, it definitely led us to want to do other things together and just hang out more. Of course, geography was a problem because I lived and still live in Los Angeles and he lives in, lived in Seattle. But, um, but we didn't let that stop us because almost every year from then on, he would come down to Comic-Con and uh, ultimately one or the other of us would start visiting the other person uh, as well. So what are some of the things you'd love to do together when you get together? We always went out for Mexican food and margaritas. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, enjoyed chips and salsa immensely <laughs> so we always had some chips and salsa uh we went to see movies together we were, were both huge james bond fans so we made it a point to see james bond movies together when they came out i literally flew to uh seattle twice to go to see james bond movies on opening day with bill and it was it's really a thrill to see uh, a movie that you love with somebody who loves it as much as you do that was worth it that was great yeah, he's uh, always, then, he was always a big Ian Fleming fan, not to interrupt, but he, yeah. he refers to Fleming several times in Sense of Wonder and how he was an inspiration to him. In fact, in your yeah. interview with him, he talks about how Fleming would write for two hours a day and um, the the words would just pile up. Yeah, and I think that was inspiring for Bill, no question about it. In fact, I think one of Bill's very, very few bucket list items was that he had an interest in going to GoldenEye, which is where... Fleming wrote most of the Bond books uh, because Goldeneye has been turned into a tourist attraction now. Uh, that's on Jamaica, mm-hmm. and um, that was the place where Fleming wrote. 
it never happened. And I believe to stay at that house cost something like two grand a night. So that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but it was something he was interested in. But we also had an enduring interest in uh, comic book fanzines. So whenever we would get together, we would spend hours looking at old fanzines and talking about the artists in particular, like Bill Joe White or Grass Green or Ron Foss or Mike Vosberg, whose work was so much better than ours. It was just something we envied, that these guys were nearly professional in quality, and some of them did go on to become professionals like Mike Vosberg. Um, and so we would go through these fanzines that were already in Bill's collection. Bill started recollecting fanzines very early on, probably... As soon as he joined Kappa Alpha, he started buying up as many fanzines as possible and then started his fanzine archives so people would actually send him fanzines. And so whenever we would get together, we would look through fanzines and we would look through comic books. Uh, we were, it was a nerd paradise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think he's got one of the best collections of zines or had one of the best collections of zines that has ever been seen. I think, If I remember correctly, a lot of fans would send him um, their old collections of zines when um, they would be facing health issues or would be needing to clean up the house or move, you know, move out. Um, so Bill, yeah, accompli- exactly right. Bill built up quite a collection. And that collection is being donated to a university now. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I'll try to find that out. But it is being donated. It is not going to uh, fall into the hands of other collectors. It's going to be at this university so that people can actually sift through the fanzines with the same sense of wonder that Bill and I had when we looked through them. Yeah, there is just a certain spark to looking at the old Ditto and Mimeo zines. That, um, so my, in my generation, all the zines were Xeroxed and usually uh, reduced, but there's a thrill looking at the older zines that you just feel like there's something from another time period, another, another world in a way. Um, and they really are vintage pieces of art now. Yeah, and especially the old Ditto ones, because they literally had a smell to them mm-hmm. uh, that was somewhat sweet, and so there was something very tactile about holding one of those things in your hands. And they were, of course, very primitive, but they did allow for color, or at least some color, so that you could actually have some fanzines where there was an approximation of the look of a comic book. Uh, of course, most of them were crap, uh, and everybody yep. knew it at the t- everybody knew it at the time. But we all we all kind of winked at each other, going, "I know this is crappy, but it's the best I can do, and hopefully, you'll find something you like in it." Yeah, I did my I did my share of zines back in the day too, just a half dozen or so, and yeah, each one was a little better, but they're definitely work of an eighteen year old kid. Exactly. Um, which is you know a, a kind of a cool thing. Uh, so a little tangent here. So you went into journalism. Um, I, I've been enjoying looking at your pictures with uh, various old rock stars. Um, do you feel <laughs> like your work in journalism kind of came out of you, your time in fandom at all? Did was there a spark yeah. or connection there? I, I would say that that had something to do with it. I wanted. I was interested in the music industry way back in high school, and I knew I wanted to go into radio. Uh, and but simultaneously, I was working at the high school newspaper. So even when I was in high school I, and doing my fanzines, I was writing a lot. Uh, but there's no, there's absolutely no question that writing for fanzines uh, allowed me to feel comfortable as a writer, even probably before I really was a good writer. But mm-hmm. it allowed me 
to be to feel comfortable with the notion of being a writer. And then uh, after being in radio professionally for seven or eight years, I segued into this music industry trade publication, Radio and Records, a weekly newspaper of the music industry. And I wrote for them for the next seven or eight years, uh, a weekly column and news stories. So, yeah, writing came quite easily to me. I also wrote a novel during that period of time, uh, which actually did end up getting published. It's a kitchen sink horror novel, which means I threw everything into it that I could think of. And I'm not particularly proud of it, but I did get it published. And that was a big thrill. So writing to me came easily and, and probably one of the reasons that writing came easily to me is that I that I accepted my um, my talents to whatever degree I had them in other words Bill mm-hmm. pushed himself to become a better writer with everything he ever wrote I never pushed myself to become a better writer I just enjoyed writing uh, Bill was driven to write a better book than he had written prior and uh, so that was the big difference between the two of us as writers. We talked quite once he started writing books, we talked about his books all the time. And he was vitally interested in doing the very best project he could do. He was not interested in an overview and in just um, telling stories and giving his opinions. He really did want to dig in. And he wanted to do the best work he could do. And he he always challenged himself to improve as a writer. As a fellow writer, I always admired the kind of grace that he brought to his writing style. He had just this very readable style that I found very, I'm trying to think of the right term for it, plain spoken, unpretentious, that Mm -hmm. was also very compelling. I would agree with that, and, and that's, that absolutely comes out of the early work he did in fanzines, and especially the work he did when he joined Kappa Alpha, because in Kappa Alpha, he actually put together several special issues of his fanzine that were directed toward comic book fandom creators and the creation of comic fandom itself. So he got his, he dipped his toe in the water, he got his feet wet. Uh, writing histories when he was in Kappa Alpha. And uh, so he was already starting to become a better writer and want to become a better writer back then. So as his friend, and as someone who probably read most everything he read or he wrote, I'm sure you saw that progression. Um, I have, the, yes. I, I, as I was prepping for uh, these various interviews, I pulled out the Golden Age of Comic Fandom and the revised edition of uh, Sense of Wonder. And the, the level of quality of writing between those two books is tremendous. Uh, I mean, it's just an enormous jump up. Yeah, and he was not afraid of the work that was involved in doing so. He enjoyed the work of researching, of tracking down people that nobody else could find. This was a thrill to him. You know, he certainly, his books were work, and it was his work, and it became his full-time job after he retired. But he he took his work very seriously, and he never wanted to cut corners. Uh, he and he was also very good with deadlines. He mm-hmm. he beat every deadline he ever had. Well, I'm a, I'm astonished by the story that he put together at the American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1950s in six months. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I mean, you know, I I think I mentioned to you I wrote the 1990s book, and that was three and a half years worth of work for me. I had a full-time job, and so it was an evenings and weekends thing. No, it, it consumed my life for, for years, and he produced that in six months. Uh, it's just astonishing to me. 
Yeah, I believe he had already retired by the time he did that book, so he could uh, do it full time. But still in all, to do that amount of research, and it's not like he came into it knowing all of that stuff already. He had to find that stuff out. There's no way you could know all the work you're producing for these books. Uh, I was continue, I literally up to the last day, I was finding new information that I had to plug in there. Um, right. And also, uh, you know, I think it was the best book in the series. Uh, there, there's a, you know, there's the narrative that the 1950s was the worst era in comics history because of the fall of EC Comics, but he makes a very persuasive case that it's in a lot of ways the best era in comics. Um, you know, there were Stanley and Barks and many other great professionals, but also um, that the, there was a level of professionalism to the work at that time that uh, really has never been seen before or since. Yeah, I was very excited when I heard he was going to do that book because I thought that the 1950s were an underdeveloped era in terms of fan recognition and history. And it was great to think that Bill was going to cover that. And I certainly learned a lot by reading what Bill wrote about. He and I talked about it quite a bit. Uh, it was very exciting to see him dig in and dig up these little morsels of information that no one had known before. And yes, as an era for comics, it was... A fascinating era because it was the era when comic code authority started when everybody had to scramble and figure out what to do about that and of course the pre-code era was fascinating as well because the question was how far were comics going to really go uh, and so they were testing boundaries all the time it was it was a terrific era for comic books and and the creators were at their peak most of the comic book creators of the 1940s were at their creative peak in the 1950s, I'm thinking in particular of Simon and Kirby, but there were many others as well. Well, sure. I mean, if you think about the people that did the, the biographies of, um, Hubert was coming into his own, um, John Stanley was uh, producing some of the best work of the decade. I mean, he really profiled a lot of these people later on who he had profiled in that book. Yeah. Um, it, it is a great book. And by the way, I don't know if it's common knowledge, but the last book that Bill turned in was a book that's going to cover 1946 through 50. Yeah. Yeah. Um, comic book Chronicles. Kurt Mitchell, who uh, actually lives in the area also, wrote the first half of the decade. He's going to be doing the final cleanup and polish against that. Oh, that's good news. Yeah, that's I really know, good news. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen the first volume, but it's um, it's mind-blowing how much detail went into that. Uh, Kurt yeah, talks I'm about actually, how it's a tremendous amount of discoveries he made along the way. Yeah, I'm actually reading that now. Oh, his it's great. very good. So you know what yeah, I'm talking about. Yeah, it's uh, very good. The level of, of insight he brings is uh, just amazing. Um, so you talk, you mentioned briefly the, the amount of professionalism Bill bring, brought to every project. Uh, my favorite anecdote about that is I went to his house in April to interview him about the Warren book. And one of my questions was, how did you approach this book? And he said, or how did you start working on this book? And he said, I did what I would do for any biography. I did census research and searched the, um, searched the property records and did all this legwork before he even started diving into the subject. Um, and the, the, that's just such an astonishing amount of work, but also it just seems so routine. Uh, it's just at a different level than we're used to for comics biographies. No question about it, yeah. I, see, that's because Bill's uh, writing heroes were people who were doing um, 
non-comic related biographies I mean, he, if you go to his house you'll see a lot of biographies of the uh, artists and the creators and the musicians and the um, and the actors that he admired and so his his template for these books wasn't other people writing about comic books and comic history his template was people writing about you know mainstream biographies mm-hmm. he probably he read I'm sure he read every biography of Ian Fleming that was ever published and so you know he turned to those and said what is what is a biography to him a biography was that 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 defined a biography it was not defined by um, anybody who was writing for comics or writing about comics yeah that's one thing that Gary called out especially is that Bill's biographies weren't fanish as much as they were just professional and had to do with the fanish subjects and I think that Correct. gave him a whole different feel um, you could see it in the Warren book and um, you could really feel that in his book about Otto Binder I don't know if you read that one of course yes yeah and the whole centrality of the, the loss of their daughter um really just like fires the whole book and, and I don't think a comic a person with a comic orientation would have been able to kind of pull that out For unfortunately some of that comes from his own pain too agreed um, one of the things I was just thinking um, in March of this past year Bill and I attended Comic Fest in San Diego and Bill was the fan guest of honor and uh, he did a panel there that I hosted where I interviewed Bill for 45 minutes and mm-hmm. actually you can find that interview on the Comic Journal website uh, and it's I mean it's great because it's it's my last opportunity to actually have been with Bill so to be able to see that for the rest of my life on the internet is a, is a huge joy for me but one of the things that Bill said during that interview which I found fascinating was that he said he, that he approached every book that he did as if it was a story he wanted to find he needed to find out what's the story that can pull people through this book mm-hmm. even though it was a biography he knew that every uh, every person that he wrote about had his own story and what was going to be the story that could pull people from page one to page 757 of a Harvey Kurtzman book and he found that story he had to find in order to write a book he had to find that story first and then he knew where he was going well I think that's why the second edition of Sense of Wonder is such a wonderful book because there really is this the story of Bill just coming into himself I don't Correct. think I don't think it's a sexuality as much as a, him just becoming more fully himself and that becomes this wonderful story that I think echoes whether you're a comic fan or not. No question about it, yeah. So for Bill, it was very important not just to give out the facts, which he could do as well as anybody else, but to find that spark, that gem, uh, that said, this is where this story needs to go. And in Binder, obviously it's the death of his daughter, but every, every person that he spoke, that he wrote about, he found that, and that's what allowed him to write these wonderful books, is finding the gem that, that could take somebody through a story. Yeah, I've, uh, I, I consider him a mentor, and I'd love to be able to take some of his lessons, but a lot of, it, a lot of what he does, what, it, what he did was just that heavy legwork and then the deep thought about what to present. Um, in some ways, he presented an easy template to follow. In some ways, it was a very challenging template to follow. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, but like I said, he, he, it didn't matter to him whether 
the task ahead of him was monumental or easier and some were monumental and some were not. What mattered to him was that he got it right. Uh, He he wasn't going to do a book if he didn't feel he could get it right. Uh, And he questioned whether in the in some cases where the main uh, person he was writing about had passed away whether he could get it right but then he always kept searching until he found the one or two people who were still alive that could fill in those blanks i mean look he had no help from jim warren for the warren book whatsoever but he did it anyway because he found the people who had spoken to warren and so he was able to get what he needed to write a terrific book anyway yeah, I really love that book, um, in part because I just never knew any of that stuff about Warren, and um, it was just fascinating to fill in that hole. Um, yeah. And in a way, it's like the ultimate uh, ultimate version of the work he was doing as a fan back in the days. No question about it. You know, in your generation, you're writing a lot of biographies that were around um, the rediscovery of people. He talks about his favorite piece he ever ran in Sense of Wonder was a piece about Eisner. And in a way, this really follows a lot of that same, you know, thought, thoughtfulness. Yeah. I mean, all of the people that Bill wrote about were heroes to him in some way. There's no question that he admired all of these people. He didn't admire the same thing about every one of these people. But there was something in each one of his interviews and his biography subjects that Bill said, I can spend two years of my life writing about this guy because there's something about him that I admire. And I want to get that on the printed page. Do you think there's a project he always wanted to write, didn't quite get to? Yeah, I think he always wanted to write a book on Steve Ditko, and many other books have been written on Steve Ditko, but Bill had the notion that he could somehow find something about Ditko that had not been expressed before, and I don't know what that was going to be. Of course, Bill didn't know either, because he never got around to it, but Mm -hmm. Bill thought that the that his version of the Steve Ditko story had not been told yet, and so that could have been his next book. It could have been. Yeah, you, you just pulled out another really important point of what Bill's approach was. He always wanted to pull out something different than what anyone else had, had done for him, or had done right. before in a bio. And one of the things that Gary mentioned is the only time he heard Bill really raise his voice is when he was talking about reviews that said, oh, this just tramples over ground that's already been written about before. Because it's not true. (laughs) Because because Bill always brought something to the project that no one else had done before. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's as a result of his research and also his passion for the... Uh, on the subject of the biography. So um, you guys got together many times, and got, it sounds like you were uh, frequent visitor, visitors at each other's houses. Um, you must be feeling a real sense of loss. Bill was a very unique guy. Yeah, there's no question about it. And actually, uh, you know, when you asked about other things that we did together, and not only did we go through comics, but we also listened to music. We're both uh, music junkies. We liked a lot of the same artists, so we listened to a lot of music and talked about a lot of music. Um, what were some of the... Li- the well, I know he's a big Beatles fan. What, what are some of the other 
bands that he was a big fan of, musicians. He, he was, was a big fan of K-pop, which is mm. Korean pop music. Uh, Interesting. And so, yeah, we actually, one time when he came to L.A., I actually drove him to Koreatown so we could go to a Korean record store, and he could look through that to see if there were some Kore- uh, K-pop artists that he didn't know about. Wow. Uh, huh. Yeah. He was a very big fan of Coldplay, and I am as well. And so we had that in common. You know, it, arguably, you could say that Coldplay basically has taken up the mantle uh, that the Beatles uh, left behind when they broke up. Of just you know, really talented songwriters who were continuing to hone their skills uh, album by album. And there was something in their music that Bill responded to. Hmm. Um, so we had that in common and did that a lot. So we liked to watch a lot of TV together or movies at his house. He had a big screen TV, a good sound system, and we shared a lot in common when it comes to what kind of films we liked. We were big fans of the Marx Brothers. I remember watching many Marx Brothers movies with Bill. Uh, we also loved 1960s spy TV shows. And we watched a lot of those, uh, especially Mission Impossible, which was for both of us probably the epitome of a 1960s smart spy TV show. Uh, Bill also turned me on to Marilyn Monroe, an actress that I obviously knew but was unfamiliar with uh, the entire extent of her work. And uh, I became a huge fan, kind of obsessed with her after he turned me on to her. And so I owe him for that. And then we we had a mutual love for film noir. Uh, We used to watch noir every time we got together. We would pick one or two movies that one of us had not seen yet, and we would take it from there and watch film noir together, and we loved doing so. It's interesting. Gary brought up uh, film noir also in context of Bill, because he used to love to go over Gary's house and um, hang out and uh, do Gary's weekly film noir nights. Yeah, I know that Bill was a part of that, and I was always jealous of that because I always thought that was such a cool idea. Uh, I would love to have a film noir club in Los Angeles. There probably is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the notion of getting together with like-minded people to watch old film noirs that I was not familiar with just sounds like the coolest idea in the world. Uh, so I, I was familiar with the fact that Bill did that, and that was something we always enjoyed when we got together. What do you know about his love for Harry Langdon? Did you ever watch any Langdon movies with him? You know, it's funny you would ask that because I was not a fan. Um, he did show me, because I was unfamiliar with Langdon's work, uh, Bill did show me some shorts that Langdon did uh, early on, perhaps the first time I visited him in Seattle. And I understood the genius of the guy, but I it, it didn't really matter to me. I was just not a fan of that concept or that, uh, that genre. You know, the one thing that <laughs> the one thing Bill and I did not have in common was that Bill was a guy who was he was a, a creature of comfort. He really had everything he loved about life inside his house. Mm-hmm. So if you if you go into Bill's house, it's like the Bill Shelley Museum because it's everything that he ever loved. <laughs> he, he was not an outdoors guy. I like hiking. I like camping. I used to like camping, but I like being outside. I like getting fresh air. I like going places. Bill was very comfortable sitting in his house all day long, every day, doing what he loved because everything he loved was all around him. So I, so all the times that I visited him in Seattle, and I would say it was probably about a half a dozen times, I only got him 
to really walk through the city with me once. <laughs> and there was a, you, you would know where this is, but there is a park in the middle of Seattle that I insisted that we visit and that we take a walk in that park. And that was really the only time that nature ever played a, a role in, in our relationship, except when he would come down to Los Angeles. I live a mile and a half from the Pacific Ocean, so we would enjoy going down to the ocean and taking a walk on the water's edge together and just enjoying Mother Nature. But uh, generally speaking, what Bill enjoyed was all inside his house. Let's sure. talk a little bit more about Bill's legacy. What do you think his, his uh, most significant legacy is? It's an interesting question. I, I, the first thing that comes to mind, and I think it really is his legacy, is that what he has left behind is, is a body of work that nobody else even attempted to do, which is to chronicle comic book fandom and all of its niches uh, so that every corner of comic book fandom could be explored uh, for the benefit of those of us who still love that. So there, there is that. So he's got several legacies. One of them for sure are all of those articles he wrote for Alter Ego and mm -hmm. all of the articles that he wrote about comic book, uh, comic fandom creators that created several books. Um, and, and no one else will ever put the amount of effort into it that Bill did. In fact, I don't think anyone else would even try to do those books, but they were important to Bill and they will be important to comic book historians forever because nobody else did those. That's number one. Number two, the level of professionalism that he brought to the comic book biography is a goalpost that everybody else can aim for from now on. But they may or may not reach it. I hope they do, by the way. I'd love to think there's another Bill Shelley out there waiting to be discovered, but I don't think I've found him yet. But somebody out there will look at Bill's books and go, Man, this guy knows how to write a comic book biography, and I've always wanted to write a comic book biography about John Buscema or Todd McFarland or, you know, whoever, and I'm going to do that the way that Bill did this. Mm -hmm. So I'd love, to, I'd love to think that Bill's legacy is that he pointed the entire comic book industry in a direction for the writing of a biography that, that puts those books up against any book that has ever been written as a biography. That would be something exciting. I think, you know, when I think of the comic book biographers, and sadly, there are not many of them, the only other one that comes to mind off the top of my head is Mark Evanier, and Mark Evanier is a great writer. The problem is Mark Evanier doesn't write biographies very often. So right. I'd, love to think, I'd love to think that what Bill will contribute is he'll set he'll create a spark for other people to say there's a giant hole here now maybe i'll fill that hole maybe i can try to fill that hole that bill uh, that bill's leaving has left behind and make no mistake you know bill has left a huge hole in terms of what could have been his future books that you and i would have enjoyed very much there is nobody else doing what he did nobody and it would be wonderful to think that as part of his legacy, there's somebody out there listening to this podcast right now or somebody who just finished reading the John Stanley biography or the Warren biography who says, I wish Bill had gotten around to writing a biography of so-and-so. Maybe I'll do that. Mm -hmm. 
that would be a terrific legacy and one that he would be very proud of. Yeah, you know, the, the, the odd thing about losing Bill is that it was, it was not until after he passed away that I fully realized the role that he played in my life. Um, I mean, I knew how much I loved him as a human being and how much I loved being with him. But I, I recognize every single day what is missing in my life now because he's not there. Because there are things that happen every day that I would like to talk to him about. Mm. Uh, whether it's an article I read in a newspaper about a K-pop band, whether it's the new trailer for the next James Bond movie that surfaced this weekend, or something else entirely. But Bill and I were in touch on a daily basis, and we were always planning our next get-together, and that's not going to happen now. So there's no question that there is a very, very big hole there for me, as well as everybody else who loves comic books. Everybody whether we recognize it or not, we're going to know in the next several years what it means to not have Bill in this universe anymore because there's things that we're never going to see that he could have done better than anybody else. So let me ask you a couple quick things about you. First, I, I saw you have a picture of you with Jack Kirby from uh, many years ago. You, tell me your story about meeting Kirby. That was when I lived in San Diego, uh, and uh, I was... I was working for Comic-Con as a volunteer, helping them put things together. And uh, the nascent comic book community in San Diego, led by Shel Dorf, um, was very interested in meeting Kirby. And, De and Shel knew Jack Kirby and said, let's just go up there and see him. And so he arranged for a day trip up to Thousand Oaks or wherever it was in the, in the San Fernando Valley of L.A., where Kirby was living at the time. And we all drove up from San Diego and spent uh, an afternoon with him. It was as lovely as every visit to Kirby's house has ever been documented. Mm. Kirby and, and his wife were very gracious hosts. He did not try to rush us out of his studio. Uh, he drew a Captain America sketch for me. I, I brought him something. I, at that time, I was creating 3D comic book covers by Xeroxing six images of a comic book cover and then gluing them on top of each other. Uh, and I, I gifted him with a comic book 3D cover. And he, in return, he uh, did a wonderful Captain uh, America sketch for me. So it was a big, a big moment in my life. It was definitely a, a key moment. It was great. Wow, that's very cool. That's funny. I have a, a 3D comic cover sitting here on my shelf. Uh, <laughs> I wonder who did that one. Uh, I met someone at a convention when I was on the East Coast at one point, um, uh, and I commissioned him to do that for me. Oh, that's great. Uh, there, there was one other guy that used to do these back in the 70s, and I think he actually still does them, and he, he did much better work than I did. He was uh, he did much more minute work than I did, but I had a good time doing those. I did them for a couple of years and sold them at San Diego Comic-Con, actually. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. It's my, one of my favorite vanished things I have. It's just such a neat image. What's the comic book? Uh, so I'm a, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a generation younger than you. Um, right. And so this is the cover of the first appearance, of, I guess, first solo story of the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, from 1977, I believe. From Marvel Superheroes? Uh, from uh, Marvel Presents, the Guardians of the Galaxy. Got it. It's uh, written by Steve Gerber, who's uh, my all-time favorite comic creator. 
Yeah, and by the way, make no mistake, Bill would be thrilled if people like yourself took up that mantle and and went with it, no matter who the creator is. Uh, you know, Bill was following his own interests, yeah. but uh, certainly he would be happy to hear that other people took some lessons from Bill, but then went off and talked about their own heroes. These were Bill's heroes, but we all have our own comic book heroes, and it would be lovely to think that uh, that as a result of having read Bill's books, people like yourself or others will write books about the comic book creators of the last 40 years because they deserve it too, of course. Yeah, right. Well, and, you know, none of them are getting any younger either. You know, they are still the same age that, you know, everyone ages out of the industry after a while. So we need to preserve these these creators. Exactly right. I'd be wrong if I didn't get off this call without asking you about your Hotter Blood anthologies. <laughs> Well, uh, I did have a career as a writer and editor that went for about uh, 20 plus years. Uh, it started, uh, again, I've always enjoyed writing. Uh, I've always enjoyed horror fiction. One of my favorite authors is Richard Matheson, who wrote wonderful short stories, uh, many of which were converted into Twilight Zone episodes from the first Twilight Zone series. And so I tried my hand at some horror fiction, and to make a long story short, along with a friend of mine who did the same thing, um, we both got stories printed in men's magazines in the mid-1980s, and the reason we pushed our work in that direction was because it was a market. It, it was a, it was a well-paying market and mm -hmm. there were not very many well-paying markets for short fiction back then, but we both got stories published in men's magazines. And then we thought, why not put together an anthology of erotic horror fiction of the type that we had written ourselves, but done by writers that we respect and admire. And that turned into the hot blood series and that turned into 13 books uh, and we worked with hun literally hundreds of writers. And because of my interest in comic books, I was always knocking on the doors of comic book creators saying, would you like to write a piece of horror fiction and make it sexy? And as a result, for example, we got two stories from Grant Morrison, uh, one of which was an award winner. Uh, they're fabulous stories. If you're a Grant Morrison fan, they're really worth searching out. Hmm. Um, John Byrne wrote stories for us. Kurt Busiek wrote stories for us. Uh, Marv Wolfman. I know I'm going to forget a bunch of creators here, but uh, I knocked on a lot of doors saying, would you like to try and write a, a story within this genre? So that was a very successful series for a while, and that, that allowed me to branch out to uh, doing other anthologies because of my interest in music and radio. I did a couple of books in a series called Shock Rock, which were rock and roll horror stories. I got a Stephen King story for one of those books. And uh, in, in all, I, I did 23 anthologies of horror fiction, and that was a lot of fun for a long time. That's awesome. I was aware of them. I never picked up one of them. Now you got me very anxious to especially read the Morrison stories. That must yeah, have been a, must have been a lot and, of fun uh, to do, too. They were a lot of fun. It, there was, it was a big, very big thrill. And again, this is a lot of these were in the pre-internet era, so you'd actually get something in the mail mm -hmm. from Grant Morrison or from uh, John Byrne or from somebody from you know a mainstream author like Lawrence Block would send me stories. And it was a big thrill to get a piece of mail from somebody whose work you really admired. 
Morrison in particular, if you're interested, his stories are in the second and third books, which is Hotter Blood and Hottest Blood. Okay. And again, they're well worth searching out there because I don't believe they've ever been reprinted and they're very good stories. Oh, absolutely. I will check those out. Super. Uh, super. Anything else you want to mention, Jeff? Anything I else you I, have in the hopper? No, you know what? Uh, my creative drive has subsided. One of the reasons that I don't write anymore is because when I was doing anthologies, it was pretty much a full-time avocation. And so it did not allow me to read a lot. And I'm a, I love reading. So I've got 20 years of catching up to do when it comes to reading. Uh, I've got a bunch of books that I am still trying to get to. And so now that I've left creating books behind, I can get back to reading books. And I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate that. Uh, yeah, you know, we have to make a choice when you're uh, when you decide to be a creator. You're either going to be a creator or a consumer. And I decided after 20 years of being a creator that it was time to go back to being a consumer again. And I'm happy that I've done that. So I turned in the 90s book in October, and um, I feel like I've been in a slump ever since because um, I haven't done very much writing at all when i do write it's it's as easy as can be because i feel like i have this pent-up energy but i just right. being i just in, enjoy having a little more time to spend with family and friends too yeah um things fall by the wayside and you know bill was um uh, he treasured his friends but he was also perfectly comfortable being on his own in his house in his basement writing all day because that was his that was his life love uh, he was not a very social person. He was social uh, when he wanted to be, and people loved spending time with him. But he was perfectly happy in his own world that he created in that house. And so he got to have the life he wanted to have. You know, if I, if I have one more thing to say about Bill, it's, that it's this. When Bill passed away, we talked not more than two or three days before he passed away, and he told me he was perfectly happy with the life he had led mm. and with his and with his accomplishments. So he didn't leave anything left behind. He, he had no remorse about the projects he never got around to or the people that he didn't see. He, he loved the life that he created for himself, and I guess the lesson there is that we should all try to do the same, which is create the life for yourself that you know you really want to lead and then go down that path and see where it takes you. Oh, thank you.